Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. This is Miller. One for recovery, a civilian. Snake, we don't have room for any more civilians here. Mm, not even for a blonde Parisian. A what? So she's, uh, pretty foxy? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian, always. Today's episode is A New Kind of Business, our fifth jaunt into Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker from 2010. Today we will talk about Militar Sans Frontiers in full detail, as well as meet the last members of this game's main cast, Cecile and Dr. Strangelove. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode— Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Merrill marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. We're not mercenaries. We're not a foreign legion. MSF's a business. A new kind of business. Given where we are in the narrative, it now makes sense to talk about Militar Sans Frontiers in depth. Indeed, after you defeat the pupa, which we ended last episode with, the player then unlocks Outer Ops. These Outer Ops are when you can deploy your combat units and any commandeered mechs to other theaters of war for plunder and glory, so to speak. MSF was founded in 1972 after Snake fell out with Zero and the Patriots, same year as Les Enfants Terribles. Snake viewed it as a home for any soldier willing to fight, regardless of nation or ideology a safe haven from the whims of politicians so as not to be a tool of the government or anyone else. And it wasn't just combat that MSF would specialize in. They would also develop regiments for logistics, training, and weapons development. As a unit, MSF should be able to run smaller intelligence operations, a la the solo infiltration missions that are snakes bread and butter, and larger military battles with artillery and battalions. This way, they'd be resistant to both covert and overt operations ran against them, not unlike the U.S. was doing in Central America at the time. To this end, Snake initially believed that MSF should always be mobile. They're nomads. They have no home. This feels like a direct continuation of Solid Snake, Hal, and Sonny living in the Nomad in MGS4. Given dialogue in this game's prologue, it seems very much the case that the CIA was hunting Snake and his unit. MSF wouldn't truly take off until Snake recruited Kaz in Columbia, which we broke down in his character analysis a few episodes back. While Snake was the commanding officer and the ideal soldier and spy, Kaz was the business mind, the accountant, the chief of strategy for MSF. He envisioned it as a new kind of business. More dignified and purpose-driven than mercenaries for hire, but divorced of the politics of the state, well, theoretically. Over the course of Peace Walker, Snake and Kaz really developed this new business model, and Militar Sans Frontiers flourishes and expands in time, both in personnel and infrastructure. Though a big assist does go to Zadornov and the KGB, as the Caribbean off-coast plan provided to them allows them to set down roots and invest. As Snake keeps racking up the heroism points on the battlefield, which, not a metaphor, you legit get heroism points based on lethality, alerts, etc. after every mission— more and more soldiers swell up the ranks at Mother Base, and Kaz is in charge of creating and finding teams and missions for the new recruits. Throughout the game, as your business keeps improving, Mother Base will keep expanding as Kaz builds more and more platforms for the unit. 
MSF will factor into the plot more directly in this game's third act. It will be revealed it is the target of Coleman's nuclear attack to prove his deterrence theory. The geopolitical and environmental impact of such an attack would be catastrophic, but it would also destroy all that Big Boss has built, which, good, according to Coleman. He despised the boss and now looks to destroy perhaps the last of the memes she left behind, aka Big Boss. MSF and Mother Base will be extremely relevant to MGSV and a source of tragedy in its opening chapter, Ground Zeroes. While Snake is off trying to rescue Paz and Chico, XOF Commander Skullface will burn Mother Base to the ground, killing everyone in the process. The only survivors of the attack would be Big Boss, upon his return from Cuba, Kaz, and some no-name medic that I'm sure has no import whatsoever. We'll get there, of Just course. some guy. <laughs> just, he's literally just some dude. <laughs> I like, I, I do like, I hesitate to call it like a plot twist that, that uh, MSF is the target of Coldman's strike, but it's a nice, you know, it, it fits nicely because it, they, they kind of come off as uh, the first part of the, his first few appearances, he comes off like he's mostly ambivalent to Snake and it's like, no, he hates him. Like that, I don't know. I thought it was a stranger earlier in the game, this time through, that you don't really get like any personal vendettas between them, even though they, they should be, like mm-hmm. by the lore. But I don't know. I, I think that fits. I think that fits well. It's not really a huge twist. It's not even like as good as the, the Houseman stuff in MGS1, but you know, so it's, it's, it's fine. Like you said, it's not a twist, but it just it fits well with the story to kind of bring all the threads together. Because um, the expansion of MSF was kind of happening separately from everything else that was going on with yeah. the plot. Um, so to kind of bring that all back together. And also, you spent the game building MSF, so adding platforms and teams and recruiting people. So theoretically, you have some stake in it not being destroyed, uh, which is nice. The MSF logo in this game is yellow and black, and in its center is a skull in the shape of Pangaea, the supercontinent that made up the world 335 million years ago. It would break apart about 200 million years ago. The Outer Heaven logos in the MSX games, as well as Liquid Ocelot's Outer Haven, prominently featured a skull, so the inclusion here sets that up, a meme to be passed down to Outer Heaven and Haven from MSF. Also, it kind of looks, it looks more like... um the Ludens logo than mm-hmm. the other ones did. So like out of canon, it represents Kojima kind of uh, refining his own personal logo. Like it does not look that different from the, uh, from his current logo. No, you're absolutely. The, the Luden. Yeah. Right. So and I, I like that. I would say his personal logo prior to this, and especially under Konami was the Fox logo um, starting in MGS three. I mean, it started with Fox sound way back when, but um, the Fox, logo with mgs3 kind of became the kojima productions under konami logo for a while Mm -hmm. and this is kind of what it will become once you know kojima productions is no longer a konami uh subdivision um which is a good catch i didn't even think about that but that's exactly right and pangea being a singular landmass making up the entire world feels appropriate for the without borders motif we are all just one unified the world made whole in the parlance of the boss from mgs3 MSF is, of course, named after MSF. That's to say, Medicine Sans Frontiers, also known as Doctors Without Borders, though the game is clear that it is not at all based on how Doctors Without Borders actually operates. But the similarities in philosophy are apparent, and the real MSF is often found operating in war zones and areas suffering from endemic diseases or natural disasters. 
the former we see in both uh, Peace Walker and the Phantom Pain, and the whole endemic diseases thing is a big part of the Phantom Pain itself. Medicine Sans Frontiers was, was established in 1971, so just a year before our Militar Sans Frontiers would be fictionally founded. It arose out of the events from the Nigerian Civil War, as doctors tried to get medical assistance to the region of Biafra, but had difficulty due to a blockage by the Nigerian army. Also a motivating factor was the 1970 Bola Cyclone, one of the worst natural disasters in terms of human life lost. The storm hit East Pakistan, now known as Bangladesh, and parts of India and led to desperate need for medical care. And this MSF would also be in Nicaragua two years before the events of this game to help with an earthquake that hit Managua. Doctors Without Borders has been operating ever since, often attached to war zones and regional conflicts, from the U.S.'s imperialisms into Vietnam and Cambodia, to African conflicts in Liberia and Rwanda, into the several conflicts still continuing today. The organization would get a Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts in 1999, which would feel deserved if the Nobel Peace Prize hadn't been given to war criminals as well. Think Henry Kissinger and the drone bomber-in-chief Barack Obama. Besides their actual humanitarian work, MSF also created the Blank Without Borders naming convention, one that nearly every profession will adopt. There's Lawyers Without Borders, Engineers Without Borders, and maybe my favorite, Payasos Scenes Fronteras, or Clowns Without Borders. That meme, of course, was picked up by this game and our podcast. And fitting in with this game's themes and our own proclivities, there is a socialist streak to this anti-nation angle. Lenin spoke at length about the national consciousness rising alongside capitalism, as he says, For the complete victory of commodity production, the bourgeoisie must capture the home market, and there must be politically united territories whose populations speak a single language. Therein is the economic foundation of national movements. The tendency of every national movement is towards the formation of national states, under which these requirements of modern capitalism are best satisfied. Nations are evolved over time, usually around language, territory, economy, and culture. Boy, it feels like all of those are organizing pillars to various Metal Gear Solid games, no? From this emerges dominant countries, usually on the backs of colonialism and financial strangulation, as Lenin laid out in Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Lenin, to be very condensed here, believed in uniting oppressed nationalities under the banner of a working class, which is not unlike what Snake is trying to do with MSF. This isn't a great one-to-one comp because this game is very specifically about imperial war, but replace soldier with worker in all these without borders chats we have in this game, and I think it will be illuminating to the player. Again, none of this is to attribute socialism or Marxist-Leninism to Kojima himself or even this game. But as I've argued, it's a reading that can be defended with story examples, and the more we cover these games, the more I think it is very much undergirding Mr. Kojima's work. And I do think there's a lot of capitalism in the DNA of Militar Sans Frontiers, though not in a positive light. While the idea of joining Beyond Borders is an attractive one, Kaz very much wants to make this a business with big C capitalism at the forefront of his mind. MSF will invest heavily in R&D, seemingly inventing... Doritos, energy drinks, Mountain Dew, and Axe body spray. Unfortunately, they, they could not invent Monster Energy because it was already invented in uh, in um, Death Stranding, as we all know. Picking up the themes from MGS4, war and capitalism can't be separated from each other in these times. 
Indeed, to keep MSF running, you need to make sure your monthly income statement stays in the black, and you do so by how strong your combat unit is. More more soldiers leads to more battles, which leads to more money. Well, at least for the people on top. I don't know. I I, I feel like a cause. Yeah, it's definitely something that comes off a little more in V. Is that cause is not? I I don't think cause is supposed to be an avatar for for anyone. Like I don't know if he's supposed to have necessarily positive attributes because he's sort of the the chief architect of of the revenge stuff in V and like he, he it's sort of his will that poisons Diamond Dogs a little, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I, I would say. I think you're absolutely right. I even think that him not him renouncing the real big boss at the end of it is is not necessarily it's supposed to be sort of a mistake, I guess, because like again, again, this is this is the the only real flaw with V is that um it does not quite bridge the gap between this big boss and you know evil dictator big boss from the from the msx games so like i i don't feel like him renouncing big boss is meant to be like a positive because i think kojima can't bring himself to dislike big boss because he likes him so much but but cause is definitely yeah cause is not necessarily a uh, pure-minded individual i would say he's not an idealist as I was going to say, Metal Gear Solid characters, there's like, you know, are they likable and are they good? And Kaz might be the highest on the likability scale, but like pretty low mm. on is he actually good? Um, like yeah. what he's like, what he does, his influence on the system, which I think you hit right, is like he, like Skullface, puts his lust for revenge in the system. And then it's a driving force. And just like this whole idea of this like mercenary for higher business. And I know he envisions that something greater. It's not a good idea. Private military companies as MGS four laid out are bad. Uh, very, very bad. Mm. Um, mm. So I, I do think there is cause is like super likable and a really fun character, but yeah, I do think he is putting in some deleterious uh, elements into the system, so to speak. It's not, it's not fair to blame him entirely. For oh, it, no, 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 no. Um, I do think, a l- but, but go ahead, go ahead. In lieu of actually seeing Zero, Kaz is sort of the avatar for that. Like, we don't really see that happen with Zero because he's just not. Big mistake, I feel like, not just not having him be like an on screen character after three because you, you can't get to see how he's changed and what about him that, that Snake finds so detestable. Because, like, again, the guy in Metal Gear Solid 3, who, the goofy weirdo who liked James Bond movies, it's hard to really see him as like the greatest villain on the planet. But. That's what the canon tells us, so it's kind of hard to reconcile those. Yeah, and uh, I have a section prepared on Zero near the end of our Peace Walker coverage because I I do think it's at least worth talking about him a little bit before we get into MGSV, and he does have a little more presence there because he's actually at least heard in that game, I guess. Hmm. But um, we because MGSV is a pretty big story, I do want to talk about Zero a little bit since he's not physically present in this game. Well, we've talked at length about MSF, with a communist detour befitting your hosts, but I can tie it to one other thing of great importance to me. That is, the Brotherhood Without Banners from A Song of Ice and Fire, or as more people will know it from, Game of Thrones. Mostly Season 3, though they do crop up back in Season 6. Hell yeah, they do. The Brotherhood Without Banners in Westeros were a combat unit dispatched by Ned Stark in the name of King Robert Baratheon, though both Ned and Robert would fall before they completed their mission. Though their king fell, the Brotherhood did not give up the fight. 
In fact, they formed closer bonds with each other and decided they weren't going to fight for one monarch or another, but rather for the small folk. So they weren't going to be tools of the government or anyone else either. They adopted the name Brotherhood Without Banners, which is pretty much the Westerosi take on Soldiers Without Borders. Like MSF, the Brotherhood Without Banners is led by their own grizzled, one-eyed soldier, the Lightning Lord, Beric Dondarrion. Beric, we will learn, is kept alive by the magic of the Lord of Light, but tales of him and his Brotherhood spread like wildfire through the country, creating a myth and legend about around Beric that outpaces the man himself. And wait, the similarities don't just end at Soldiers Without Banners or One-Eyed Leaders. The very fate of both organizations is pretty much the same. MSF will go on to become Diamond Dogs, an organization fueled by a lust for revenge, in part due to Snake and Causes trauma, but also because of the actions of Skullface, a man with the gray face of a corpse. Which brings me to Lady Stoneheart. Game of Thrones fans may not know this, but in the books, Catelyn Stark is revived following the Red Wedding, and she she comes back as the zombified figured Lady Stoneheart, who leads the Brotherhood Without Banners in place of Beric. Gone are the ideals and missions of the Brotherhood, now they only exist for revenge, revenge against the Lannisters and Freys, and the ruin it brings upon the Brotherhood in the process. I'll end the Song of Ice and Fire tangent here, but the similarities are, for lack of a better word, Stark. So with that out of the way, let's pick back up with the story. (laughs) After defeating the pupa and recruiting Huey Emmerich to MSF, Snake makes for the Cloud Forest, wherein the ruins should be Dr. Strangelove, lead architect of Peace Walker's AI Matrix. Disabling the AI pod would render Coleman's Peace Walker project dead in the water. Before we go any further, I do want to circle back to Huey for a second. After his recruitment, the player now has access to a dozen or so tapes from Huey about his backstory, about Peace Walker, and some that are just flat-out Easter eggs. We talked about his history in full last time, but some of the other revelations in his tapes are as follows. Peace Walker has a built-in hydrogen bomb for self-destruct, making it impractical for another nuclear power to target and destroy Peace Walker without causing massive death and destruction. The H-bomb contained in Peace Walker has the power that rivals the Tsar Bomba, a Russian-developed aerial bomb that is the most powerful nuclear weapon ever tested. In discussing this, Snake revisits his own experience on Bikini Atoll and his own proximity to nuclear testing. There's a lot of talk about Granin, which we here at PSF love because who doesn't love a drunk-friendly socialist? Huey talks about Granin's nuclear platform and tells Snake he can begin construction on their own platform if Snake can recover enough AI components. What would they name this platform? Well, Snake says, how about Metal Gear? Lastly, we get a little more information on Dr. Strangelove, mainly that Huey had met her over at NASA and again at DARPA, which we all know and love. No mention of Sigint, though. We will get more into Strangelove later this episode. So on to the mission proper. In a humorous turn, Snake makes it to the sneaking point riding on a donkey. Just something funny about America's greatest living soldier riding into battle on his noble steed, a mule. My name is Big Boss, and this is Jackass. Or maybe it's supposed to be Quihotion, who knows. The Chapter 2 title flashes on the screen, The Phantom Hero. The mission difficulty keeps jacking up. You will now have to deal with scouts and snipers on the regular, enemies that are hidden and camoed, and carry wires to counter CQC. These next couple maps leading to the ruins are very similar to MGS3, especially the maps right before you fight the end. This is where the game has its most survivalist game, DNA. 
Snake makes his approach, but he's spotted by the chrysalis flying above the treetops. One thing we haven't pointed out yet is that these AI pods and AI weapons all have eyes that are pretty much HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey, very possibly Kojima's favorite film and maybe one of the two to three most prominent influences on Metal Gear Solid. After a couple jungle stealth maps, you will come to Cadarata de la Muerte, the Waterfall of Death, where you face another vehicle miniboss. This time it's the MI-24A attack helicopter, but as we with Metal Gear Brain Poisoning would call it, a hind. It's structurally similar to the tank and ATV battles earlier, but the chopper's airborne presence and the map's tighter corners make it much more challenging to avoid. It's good. That makes that's good. <laughs> I, I really like this whole section, honestly, like design-wise, I think because it is the most I think they do a pretty good job of kind of capturing the M- the MGS3 vibe which I would not have expected, like, if you told me beforehand. And it, it's been long enough since I played this originally that I was also like, oh, yeah, this is the part where they do the MGSP maps. And then I, 10 minutes later, I was like, oh, this is really good. Um, yeah, it works really well. It's probably my favorite place, definitely to this point, to, like, just mess around with stuff, figure out how things work, and, and just kind of fuck with guards. So, you know, any any place that does that will be my favorite place in a Metal Gear game. Yeah, like there's like, I think I want to say like three-ish missions, not counting the helicopter boss battle. They kind of work mm. with all these same set of maps. Um, and there's kind of multiple paths to take. There's, you know, snipers. There's uh, enemy patrols so you can like stalk people. There's people hidden. Like this has like also the greatest like enemy variety in terms of what they're all doing. Um, so yeah. you can do a lot of stuff. So you can find use for your sniper rifle, but also other weapons as well. Um, and no, I think I think this is the best part. This is where camouflage makes the most difference, probably anywhere in the game. Mm. Which you you might be just using your sneaking suit, you know, full time at this point. But that said, um, you know, I, I think you're right. I think this is the most MGS three and probably the most. None of this game is really meant to be a sandbox or you know, open yeah. worldy. But as much as any area is, this is probably it. Snake dispatches the troops and the chopper followed by a quick catch-up with Mother Base. Huey is ready to start building MSF's very own Metal Gear. Snake is still hesitant, but he admits an army without borders may need its own deterrent, so it's not preemptively wiped off the map. Otacon moves forward with the project named Metal Gear Zeke. But there's more news out of Mother Base. You can now run active recruiting missions from the Recruit menu, Basically just involves CQ seeing a soldier on the beach a couple times, but the soldiers recruited here tend to be better than the ones you pick up off your main mission maps. These also play as an in-game consequence of Snake building the reputation and spreading the word of MSF. We will circle back to this mode in a future episode. And lastly, you can now develop the sneaking suit, which is critical to S-ranking missions in this game. It muffles your footsteps when crouched and allows you to sneak up on enemy soldiers at full speed. This will be especially effective when replaying the vehicle mini-boss levels, as sneaking up and extracting the escort troops are the only way to get the best rankings on those missions. Okay, back to this mission. Snake heads for the lab, but before he can really get going, well, he meets a foxy French lady out in the middle of nowhere. This is Cecile, who's not like a super major player in this game, but does factor into the key mystery of the story. As such, we'll do a full, albeit brief, character dive into her now. They told me this was a paradise. That there were more rare birds here than anywhere else. That there was no war here. That it was safe. 
So this foxy Parisian, as the game itself puts, Cecile as a name comes from Latin for blind, possibly blind to self-beauty, which that beauty part definitely applies to Cecile. But also, the tale she will tell Snake here will be one in which she was blindfolded the whole time, so maybe something there? And Cosima descends from Greek, meaning order, or again, beauty. Do you think this game wants us to think she's hot? And sorry, um, I missed uh, saying her full name, Cecile Cosima Caminades, who is played by Catherine Taber, who also voiced Padme in the Star Wars Clone Wars animated series. I, yeah, I, Kat Taber's, Kat Taber's another. She's been around. I, I have to look up exactly what she's been in, because she's definitely a, a kind of assorted voices performer. Yeah, I think she'll have the general video game animation voice acting pedigree that basically everyone else in this game seems to have. I can't think of anything. Oh, God, I know something she's in. She's in KOTOR. Oh, well, everyone. She's, she plays Mission. She plays Mission, yeah. She plays a main character in that game. So, yes, there we go. Caminades comes from the Spanish word for walk, which I guess she was out on a hike. Or is it that the last name, or is it the last name equivalent of Walker, which circles back to the name Peace Walker? But that is just maneuvering. Cecile Caminades is actually the name of Konami's comm manager in France at the time. She had asked Kojima to be made a Metal Gear character going way back to 2007 or 8. And in the Japanese version, her name is Cecile Kojima Kaminansu, which means Kojima is God. Lamet, which, you know, to be fair, he is the god of this broken world of snakes and metal gears. Her character design is also patterned after the real-life Cecile Caminandes, with blonde hair, blue eyes, and a bandana and hiking outfit. Her getup does remind me of the boss from Virtuous Mission just a little. Cecile is an ornithologist, considers herself a libertine, and in keeping with the game's themes, detests war. She had watched friends go off to fight in the Algerian War of the 1950s and 60s, a war between the colonial power of France and its oppressed populations in Algeria. It is her hatred of war that led her to Costa Rica, where there supposedly was no war here. Idealistic, but it really speaks to how the U.S. and Western allies have made the entire world a battlefield. In the 70s, it was via proxy wars and covert operations, and now we just point drone missiles at everyone in the world, one button push away from incineration. This is, there is nowhere now where there is no war, no place to hide, or hideo. Cecile is mostly a plot element in the story, though she's given a pretty solid characterization for such a short time on screen. There is a certain Bond girl-esque feel to her, maybe not a lead Bond girl, but one of the uh, Bond allies along the way. Though she and Snake never hook up, she's clearly into him and vice versa. She seems pretty tough, having withstood torture and escaping on her own. Cecile never really pops up again in the Metal Gear storyline. You can find a photo of her in MGSV, but as one of the few civilians at Mother Base, she was returned back to France prior to the UN inspection fiasco of MGSV Ground Zeroes. Do you think Cecile's hot? I don't have any real thoughts. <laughs> Kaz does. I just I love I love that bit where he like uh Kaz is like, well, we can't take on any more any more civilians, and, and Snake's just like, oh, she's pretty hot though. And Kaz is like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like she just, uh, it, it isn't a Kojima game unless they freak out about like hot women. Woman, or I, hot? I feel like that one's almost like <laughs> I think like that one's almost like a joke though. Oh, for like, sure, yeah. Like, Kaz is such a weird, pathetic idiot mm-hmm. that 
about it that they're making fun of him, mm-hmm. which is great. That's the way you should do it. Cecile, being the ornithologist, quickly puts Snake in his place about all things birds, ruining his cover. None of that is important, though. What matters is Cecile made the tape of the boss's voice we heard in the game's prologue. This must be Paz's friend, thinks Snake, as he asks her to run down her imprisonment and escape. She recalls hearing the voice of Dr. Strangelove, who was awful kind to her. And there was another voice, the voice of the boss, one that Cecile would hear singing from time to time. Snake asks if the voice said anything else. Cecile says yes. It said, Jack. This tenses Snake up as he seems to be closing in on the truth of all that is happening. Cecile and Snake wrap up like nearly all encounters do here in Central America. Cecile laments she can't go back, giving Snake a chance to wax poetic about MSF. In that case, come to our place. Huh? You don't need a passport there. Don't even need a name. If you want to go back to Paris, we'll take you there anytime. What I want is a shower, a change of clothes, and a cigarette. I've got a cigar. It's Cuban. Not French cigarettes? They prefer unfiltered. Fresh out. But come back to my place. You can have all the French cigarettes you want. It sounds like heaven. <laughs> Close, but not quite. Outer heaven. And then he hooks her up to a Fulton, and it's balloon ride time for our new lady. Kaz was reluctant to bring a civilian back to base, but Snake makes the pretty easy sell of a young blonde Parisienne. Kaz is into the ladies, after all. Allegedly. Allegedly. Also into the ladies, to be clear. But there's some confusion, too. Cecile made the tape all right, but she's a young woman. No way she could be Paz's friend from the professor's story. She's ten years Paz's elder, so they think. Stump, but with no other choice, they press on. Cecile is now available for codec calls, usually for information about birds, which will be relevant here in a second. Snake makes it to the ruins, but the key card Huey gave him doesn't work. What the hell? Thinks Snake, and then Huey clues us in. Strangelove has revoked his access. Whether it's on Coleman's orders, or because she just doesn't really like Huey, who's to say? Well, we are, and it's almost definitely the latter. So the player does a little backtracking. They need to find a soldier with a working keycard. Cecile knows one. He patrols in an orange jacket and is often somewhere where you can hear the Quetzal bird singing. With this info, Snake finds the right keycard and enters the Ruinas de Cochi Quetzal. We go to 2D cutscenes as Snake enters the courtyard. He overhears a horse, and not just any horse, the boss's horse, a white and illusion. And here, at long last, we meet Dr. Strangelove, who we will now discuss in depth. I've been waiting, Snake. Yes, waiting without joy or pleasure. Waiting for the one I despise. So Dr. Strangelove, voiced by Vanessa Marshall. And funny how that sound clip starts off with, I've been waiting, Snake. Words that the boss said that have replayed in uh, Naked Snake's head for the last 10 years. Dr. Strangelove rounds out, in my opinion, the excellent cast of women characters in Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, joining Amanda, Paz, and Cecile, and arguably the boss. Remember the boss? She's back, in pog form. Sorry, pod form. And this is Vanessa Marshall's second major voice acting role in the canonical Solid titles. She also voiced Olga Gerlukovich in MGS2. Uh, she's been in a lot of Star Wars stuff. She's in Rebels, I think. Uh, let me look. Because I know there's a bunch. She's just been, she's like extremely 
uh, like very, very prolific. She, I think she's in Jedi Outcast, I believe. Yes, she is. She, oh, wow, she voiced computer in James Bond 007, everything or nothing. <laughs> we all love computer. Oh, yeah, and then she, she had a lot of people in KOTOR, too. Yeah, this is, a, this is a big, uh, big KOTOR pod here. Um, yeah, she's just been around a lot. Oh, she did. Okay, this is fun. She had another Metal Gear role. Oh. She's Eva in Portable Ops. Oh. <laughs> so we have no idea what she's like in that. Um, yeah, yeah. I probably different enough to be noticeable. That's pretty much it. She's just been uh, she's been extremely prolific. She's in a lot of uh, Mass Effect games, just like one-off characters, stuff like that. So, yeah, no, uh, good for her. Uh, she does a pretty convincing British accent here. Um, I I actually kind of love her Olga in uh, Metal Gear Solid Two. I think she, uh, Olga is kind of a character that's grown on me, just as kind of she's funny, like a lot of the weird stuff she says. What a ridiculous thing to say. Um, but yeah, no, Vanessa Marshall. Yeah, she's great. Dr. Strangelove's, sorry, Dr. Strangelove's name is just that. We know nothing of her real name or first name, just the name given to her while working at ARPA. And then there's the Kubrick film of the same name, or close enough, I stopped worrying about that long ago. That movie, of course, specifically deals with nuclear war and deterrence theory, and has been explicitly called out by the series before. But the in-universe reasoning for strange love is, in perfect Kojima brain, that she's a lesbian, i.e. her strange love for the boss. Dr. Strangelove is depicted as an albino, pale skin and white hair, pictured in a red coat that gets the coloration treatment during the Ashley Wood cinematics. In picking up the meme of the Peter Sellers titular Dr. Strangelove, she wears sunglasses and black gloves at all times. Her general look also feels like something out of the Matrix, like a cross between Trinity and Switch, the albino character from the first film. Strangelove was born in England in the 1930s, growing up in Manchester. Due to her albinism, she couldn't go out during the day, but did so often at night, developing a fascination for the stars and space. Perhaps the most remarkable part of her childhood is that she studied under Professor Alan Turing, the famous mathematician and cryptologist from our real world. The parallels here should be obvious. The Turing test is a method for testing intelligent behavior in machines relative to a human, and this is where Strangelove's interest in artificial intelligence is born. Turing, too, was gay, another parallel. Both his and Strangelove's ignominious fates is sadly another parallel. Strangelove would go on to Caltech before joining NASA, working on the Mercury Project, where she would meet both Huey Emmerich and the boss. The boss, if you recall from MGS3, was the first person to space in this world, beating Yuri Gagarin, but her spacecraft did not have proper shielding, and the boss suffered from, the radi- from radiation exposure and would be hospitalized at length following the spacecraft's crash. Strangelove was the one overseeing the launch of this Lady Mercury project, though she protested to her superiors and the boss that it was folly. Their desire to be the first in space came at the cost of the boss's safety, and eventually, the boss's involvement would be entirely erased from the project. The erasure of contributions from women and queer folks applies to all fields, but it was definitely a thing with 60s NASA and space travel, as the computers— in which I mean women, who helped man reach space and the moon were largely forgotten or ignored in the country's collective memory. Strangelove would not see the boss again after the accident. The boss would go back to her her world of spies and soldiers, and Strangelove would move on to ARPA to work on AI projects. 
Again, this is where she earned her name of Strangelove by her male colleagues. She would eventually learn of the defection and death of the boss, and that it came at the hands of Naked Snake, her apprentice. Arpa became DARPA, and Strangelove was removed, but her work had caught the eye of Hot Coldman. She began construction on the Mammal Pod, the higher brain function AI that would govern the unmanned weapons of the Peace Sentinel project, namely the Peace Walker platform itself. This AI would be given the mind of the boss, the best and most logical mind in Strangelove's eyes. This, of course, has dual purposes. Strangelove was indifferent to Coleman's plans, but her work allowed her to get all classified information on the boss as she tried to recreate her psyche. She needed to know the truth about Selino Yarsk to find the man who killed the boss and hopefully clear her name. I want the truth. The boss's last will. That brings us to the current timeline, and Strangelove will be a major presence through the rest of this game. She doesn't appear in MGSV. She's mentioned in Ground Zeroes as resigning from MSF. She'd apparently circle back with Amanda to help recover Peace Walker after the Mother Base attack, before returning to DARPA to continue work on AIs at the behest of Zero. Zero, at this point, was already deteriorating due to Skullface's parasite attack, which we will cover in MGSV. And then she would end up working for XOF under Skullface alongside Huey. And we covered a lot of her fate back when we talked Huey. They'd have a child named Hal, but Huey would end up killing Strangelove because she didn't want Huey using Hal as a Metal Gear test pilot. Sahelanthropus only had room for children pilots. Strangelove plays on several themes, most of them familiar to Metal Gear fans. She's at the core of the deterrence themes, and her AI work would be the meme that Zero and Sigint would pick up in creating the Patriot AIs. She's marginalized through the course of her life, both for her gender and sexuality. We talk a lot about the homoeroticism of the male characters in Peace Walker, but it applies to women as well. Strangelove loved the boss, and even seems to be into Cecile, who she treated not unkindly during her imprisonment, and even lacked security to give her a chance to escape. Go on. Kill me like you killed her. Kill me like you killed the boss. Kill me! What exactly do you... Come on, Snake. Or should I say Big Boss? That filthy title given you as reward for murder. Do you still wear it with pride? You chose a shadowy country over the mentor who made you what you are. You brought despair to good soldiers everywhere. You used the pretext of a mission to kill a true hero. Is that what you call loyalty? Answer me! So let's get to this strange love encounter, shall we? She's a snuffer, and she offers Snake some snuff. The shot of her giving him a hit is fantastic, framed like the royal kiss with Snake on his knee holding her outreached hand. But this is just passing courtesy. She despises Big Boss for what happened to THE Boss, and she's determined to figure out what happened at the end of Operation Snake Eater. Strangelove has a good idea of what happened 10 years ago, but she still needs to piece together the boss's final decision to quote-unquote defect and be killed by Naked Snake so she can complete her AI. She, like Snake, is trying to find catharsis for those events a decade past. Did I mention she hates Big Boss? Because oh boy she does, calling the title of Big Boss a filthy one, ill-gotten in the worst ways. Strangelove exposits on the work she's been doing, giving Snake an opportunity to meet the boss AI or the Mammal Pod. The boss, as the finest tactical mind the West had ever seen, was the best person to pattern for the Peace Walker project. She would know exactly which targets to pick for retaliation. 
But again, Strangelove's true purpose was understanding the boss in her final moments, her last will, so to speak. Snake, for his part, just keeps reciting the CIA-approved summary of Operation Snake Eater, that she was a traitor and he had to kill her. She's a dirty defector and there isn't much else to it. But when Snake steps inside the AI pod, it calls him Jack and he starts having flashbacks to the final encounter at Salino Yarsk. Snake's memories are a mess at this point. He's misremembering some dialogue, what was said when, as his damaged psyche replays the events in that white lily field, full on with quick time events from the player. Tears can be seen on the boss's face through these moments as well. Snake eventually passes out in the pod. So I really like, oh, I, I first I liked, I wish Strangelove was in the series a little more because I feel like what we just went over is like good backstory, but like it doesn't really. I don't know. I would say she she doesn't. She's very much a plot. She just does plot in in the game. That's all she does. And even even her sort of appearance in in MGSV is just having plot done around her. But um, I think she's one of the coolest designs in this game, and I think she's it's one of the better performances. And I think this the torture scene is probably the best scene in the game. But it it is more Snake, like it's his characterization, and I really do love. I love that he sticks with the with the lie you would assume because i think especially if you if you just played mgs3 for the first time you would assume if he met someone else who knew the boss he would spill it and he, he'd say like what happened and and you know all this because like it's obvious he doesn't believe that i mean strange love even calls it oh it's like obvious he doesn't like why are you doing all this stuff if you if you believe that she was just a traitor but he he's doing it out of just loyalty to her because she didn't want anyone else to know, and it's like really honestly sad. Like he probably sh- he probably doesn't have to do that. Like nobody would blame him if he didn't. But it's it's just like you said, his psyche is all fucked up, and he doesn't know. He hasn't he. Because at this point, I mean, I would say narratively, the the function of this game is getting him from the broken, destroyed, like completely faithless person he was at the end of three to the sort of crusader he is in V. And uh, I feel like this is, that's sort of the, this is kind of the, like, it's kind of the crucible he has to go through, like reliving this and figuring it out, like what exactly he feel, how he feels about it. He doesn't even know. It's really, it's really great. It's, it, it's one of haters best performances. It's, um, if you ever want to hear him yell a bunch, it's just, this is one of your best, uh, one of your best chances for it of just him yelling in pain over and over because he's eating, you know, like he's being electrocuted. But um, I really like. It. I just kind of wish Strange Love had something else to do in the game. But you know, just this is how these games are. They're not long. They're simultaneously not long enough and too long. Um, a couple things I'll say. Uh, first one, I think uh, Hater's performance is the right thing to hit on because, um, yeah, the torture scene is great, but also when he's just repeating the CIA-approved story about Operation Snake Eater, you can almost feel like he's dead inside delivering those lines. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. he's going through the motions he knows he has to go, but you can kind of tell there's no conviction to it in a way that's, like, good acting, not just, like, Hater phoning it in, but, like... Mm-hmm. He's definitely holding something back, and you might not know what it is, but you can kind of tell that in his voice register. I think, and I, I, I don't disagree that Strangelove kind of is here for plot, but I think it's a very specific part of the plot in that this game yeah. is about, like you said, this is the Crucible. This is Snake finally getting catharsis for 
what happened with the boss in Operation Snake Eater. And there's really no one else in this game who could possibly share that catharsis with or be a sounding board for it without like them knowing the boss. Like he talks a little bit about it with Kaz, but Kaz is a guy he picked up, you know, off the streets of Columbia two years ago. Strange Love is someone who had a longer history with the boss and was in love with her. Yeah. Um, so the, they're both kind of searching for the truth. So it's almost like they're parallel storylines that kind of tie up together with what happens with the AI pod at the end of chapter four. Um, I think so. I think that's what it is, and I I do think she exists to serve Big Boss's arc. I think that's correct, but I I think she does have an arc herself in there, and that both of them tend to be about character, which is ultimately what I kind of like to see. I just I guess I guess I'm sad that there's it's an arc that just ends here. Yeah, and that and that's just like and then she died, and it's like well okay I I feel like there's not a whole lot of tweaking because she's not aside from aside from eventually dying. You know, you know, because because uh, Hal's. I mean, she didn't have to be Hal's mother either. They could they could have just not done that. She could have been in V the whole game, and just hung out, mm-hmm. done a lot of. I mean, I don't know. Oh yeah, I agree. I I think I would definitely like would have liked to see her character show up more. Like if she had been in previous games, like later in the timeline, or MGSV is the most logical place. Um, I, I agree. And she's one of the characters you want more out of. I think that's what ultimately it comes down to. So, we've gone over a lot today. Let's call it quits there. The only thing we can believe in with absolute certainty is the mission. I'm defecting to the Soviet Union. Jack, you can't come with us. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which, hey, Manuclear Bomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. I'm Ben Bryan, and I'll continue to be Brian. And also, I'm a new man, El Hombre Nuevo. A new Brian. Yeah. A shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember to find a way when heavens divide. When heavens divide, I will see the choices within my And maybe my favorite, Payasos Scenes Fronteras, or Clowns Without Borders. That meme, of course, was picked up by this game and our podcast. Clowns Without Borders is a much more frightening concept. Clowns cannot be stopped. They are coming. Clowns. If anyone wanted to make fun of our podcast, they could call us Payasos uh, Sans Frontiers.
Um, because we're clowns. Not, I mean, unless you have a clown phobia, and then in case it's terrifying, I don't, but I understand it. Yeah, clown clowns are terrifying. I'm not afraid of them, but I can understand pe- other people being. Is it what is that? Coolerophobia. That's right. I look. I think about it. Oh, one of my favorite phobias. I have a phobia. I have a phobia of, of not knowing all the names of phobias. No, I'm kidding. That that probably has a name. Um, I, yeah, I, it probably does. I I have thalassophobia. That's about it. There's a hippo monstro phobia, which is the fear of really long words. So I think the people naming the phobias are like super in on the joke. Yeah, I only have fear of great heights and fear of deep water, which I feel like aren't even like. I don't think they even need to be named. So, yeah, those are those are kind of common human fears. <laughs> I have a fear of being shot. Like, oh damn! My only weakness: bullets. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs>